All right, so hey, as I was um, getting things ready for the message this week, I was uh, reminded over and over again, looking through this passage, that sometimes, maybe more often than not, it is the, the simplest things or the most fundamental things that we need to be reminded of over and over again, and it's also the simple things or the fundamental things that, that usually make the biggest difference in our lives, and that, and that includes a, like a, a broad like, path of, of life, of in any area, it seems like, it's the simple things, it's the fundamental things, it's the basic things that make the biggest difference. But I, at least me, personally, I tend to forget. I need to be reminded. And so as I think about things like uh, my physical health, there'll be times when I'm not feeling great, I'm kind of lethargic, I'm a little tired, maybe I'm getting sick more often. And, and for me, the natural tendency is to be like, okay, well, you know what, i got to watch some YouTube videos, maybe read an article or two, uh, get, get, get a, a fresh batch of supplements, maybe I need to track my macros, do some different things like that. When it's like, whoa, 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 whoa Phil, you need to go to bed an hour earlier. <laughs> you need to not eat so much junk. It's like, oh, yeah, that's right, it's, it's the simple stuff. We get wrapped up in like the financial world of like, hey, I need to make ends meet. I need to, I need to make a little bit more money. Maybe I should have a side hustle. There's an investment opportunity. Maybe I can sell some stuff on Marketplace. I know what I'll do. Crypto. Crypto is the thing that will save me. And it's like maybe those things, they might be good and they might work. But more often than not, it's like, wait a minute. It's the simple thing. Shoot, I haven't had a budget in a year and I have a hard time saying no to myself. Maybe I need to work on those things first. In our relationships, whether it be with uh, friends uh, or even with, uh, maybe if, if you're married, sometimes it's like, oh man, the relationship's not great and there's a distance that's growing and so maybe I need to read a book on relationships or, or maybe I need to uh, uh, go like a romantic getaway with my spouse or maybe a girl's weekend or, or a guy's weekend with the guys to rekindle and those things are great, but sometimes it's a simple thing. You know, we just don't talk as much as we used to. Maybe we need to communicate a little bit more. Maybe we need to get back to the basics. So often it seems like in different areas of life, it's like, oh yeah, just remember the simple thing. Remember the fundamental thing. And man, that's true in our faith as well. When it comes to the Christian faith, there are a lot of really, really interesting and fun things that we can talk about. And I, I'm, I'm a person that loves doing that. If you've ever been in one of those conversations with me, maybe cornered in a conversation, okay? You're like, I'm trying to get away. And I was like, oh yeah, did you read that passage and hear that podcast? And have you ever heard that interpretation? And like, I can like, just geek out for hours on those things. But sometimes it's just needing to be reminded of what is the simple truth of our faith. What is the simple truth of our faith? The passage that we're going to look at today brings that to the surface in just a short and concise way. The past couple of weeks, we've been exploring kind of the Christmas story, what happened around the birth of Jesus. And we've been looking at it from the angle of uh, angels. There are angels all over the place in the Christmas narrative. Angels are simply messengers for God. They're these spiritual beings that bring messages to people and in the days, weeks, months surrounding the birth of Jesus, we see these announcements. And so the first week we look, this angel shows up to uh, an older couple, a priest named Zechariah, his wife Elizabeth. They haven't been able to have children their entire life, and now they're old, and it seems as though they're past that. Like they were past their time. Time was up. It was too late for them. And yet an angel shows up and says, you're going to have a son. It's going to be John the Baptist. And we were reminded through that message that God is always right on time, and his timing doesn't necessarily look like ours. But he's always on time. Last week, we looked at an angel coming with a, a message to a young girl named Mary who had her world just completely turned upside down at this announcement. It says, all the hopes of all, like you and all your people, that the Messiah that you've been waiting for, this king in the line of David, is going to, like you are going to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit and give birth to this, this child. And we were reminded that God has plans and purposes for the world, and they always find their fulfillment in the person of Jesus, and he invites us into that story. And today, as we 
wrap up kind of this, this series that we've been in, looking at these angel announcements, I want to look at an angel's message to someone who's often overlooked in the Christmas story. If I were to just kind of survey the room and say, hey, I, when, when you think of the, like the, the players, the major players in the Christmas story, who's the first name you think of? It's probably going to be Jesus, right? That's going to be baby Jesus. I'm guessing number two, for some of you might be Mary, others, it, for me, it actually probably be the shepherds. I think they play like a major role. It's just like the shepherds, okay, who's next? Uh, then maybe whoever, the other one wasn't Mary or the shepherds. Oh yeah, and then the wise men, right? We're talking about the wise men, they're always there. But you know who we pretty much always forget or put last? It's Joseph. Like, oh yeah, that guy was there. <laughs> Jesus had an adopted dad. His name was Joseph. I kind of forget about him sometimes. Like, seriously, I was thinking about this this week. Is there a Christmas song that has Joseph in it? If, if there is, it's not one that I know very well. Like, it's, it's Mary, did you know? We got that one. They asked the question like 87 times in the song. But there is no, there's no Joseph, did you know, even though an angel visits him as well. I've even seen several nativity scenes, y'all, that don't have Joseph in them. It's like there's Mary, there's the baby, maybe there's a shepherd, there's even animals. The animals make the scene, but Joseph isn't there. And so I want to look at uh, what this angel says to Joseph, because it's in this announcement to, to Joseph that we see the simple, fundamental thing about the Christian faith portrayed. And so we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew today. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 18 if you want to go there. They're going to be up on the screen as well. But uh, so far, we've been looking in Luke's gospel. Traditionally, there are two uh, accounts of what we would call the Christmas story. So Matthew brings us an account. Luke brings us an account. Uh, and we've been in Luke the last couple of weeks. Today, we're going to switch over to Matthew, and we're going to see this, this interaction between Joseph and this angel. Uh, but it starts a little bit before that. Matthew chapter 18, start, or Matthew chapter 1, excuse me, starting in verse 18. Matthew records that this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. So Luke actually goes into detail and tells us about this and, and gives us this, this whole long passage about Mary's interaction with the angel Gabriel. And, and even before that, the, the angel Gabriel's interaction with some of Mary's relatives, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And then Luke records this big, like, this song of praise of Mary's known as Mary's Magnificant. And, and it's like, so Luke records a lot of that. Matthew's just like, yep, Mary and Joseph are going to get married and, and Mary's pregnant. Okay, moving on. Matthew has a, a different uh, goal in mind, a different idea that he's going to be very specifically focus in on Joseph because of who he's writing to. As he's writing, Matthew writes primarily to a Jewish audience. And so it's through uh, Joseph, through the, the husband of that family, that he's going to connect Jesus to all of the right people. And so he starts this way. His, his mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, just to set the, the scene, there's a couple of things that are, are going on. Um, that it says that Mary and Joseph are pledged to be married. For us, we might consider this to be uh, an engagement in our culture. Right? Two people are engaged. It means you're moving down the path of marriage. You might be engaged for six months. You might be engaged for six years. You might be engaged whoever knows how long. Engagement is a very flexible thing in our culture. Uh, and honestly, in our culture, uh, you can walk away from an engagement with no strings attached. There, there may be pain. There may be hurt that you carry with you. But both people can be like, okay, this isn't working out. This is done. We're moving on. For, for Mary and Joseph and for that culture, it was, it was more uh, intense than that. This was more of a legally binding commitment. We actually see that. They're pledged to be married, so they're not living together yet. They're not sleeping together. They're, they're still separate in that way, but they're also kind of almost considered married already because Joseph is referred to as her husband, 
And for this, what we, what we might call an engagement, for that to be over, there has to be a legal divorce. And so for all intents and purposes, these two are married. There would be this period for a year before the marriage, this kind of betrothal period. Joseph is making plans, probably building a house or securing like a home for them, making sure that's all ready, and then they'll come together. And so it's not just as simple as, oh, this isn't going to work out. There's a lot going on. Families are intertwined already. There's an expectation that they're going to be married. And during that time, during that, that one-year period of before the, the official marriage, uh, Mary comes to Joseph with a little bit of a message. Apparently, it would seem so, because she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And we don't really know how exactly she was found to be pregnant. It seems as though this is all happening pretty quickly, so I doubt Mary is showing yet. Most likely, it would seem as though after Mary gets the announcement from the angel, and she's like, okay, so I guess this is happening, she goes and tells Joseph, and she's like, hey, so... Um, Got something I need to tell you. I mean, can you imagine how this conversation went down? I got to tell you something. So it turns out I'm pregnant, and um, it, the, the, the son is God's. And you're like, okay, okay. And, and in fact, you can see, like, it doesn't seem like Joseph reacts right away. It seems like he's going to take some time to think this through. But can you imagine trying to process that information? I almost downloaded and pulled a reel up for you guys to watch because there's like, there's this really funny one where it, it, it flips the roles of Mary and Joseph. And Joseph comes to Mary. He's like, hey, Mary, I made you a pie. I don't know, has, anybody, has anybody seen this? Yeah, there you go. There you go. And she's like, what do you mean, Joseph? We don't have an oven. And he's like, God helped me bake it. And she's like, Joseph, he's like, you see how that sounds, Mary? Right? And so I can, I can imagine there's some of that going on. He's like, okay, wait a minute. M make this make sense to me. And Joseph is like processing through this and saying, okay, like, wh wh what am I going to do here? And Matthew tells us that because Joseph was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. There's two things about Joseph at play. That The first thing is that he's faithful to the law. You may have a translation that says he's righteous, which is actually a good and accurate translation, except when we think of righteous, we see that word right, and we almost think like perfect. But he does everything right. He's righteous. He's good all the time. But the meaning really is how it's translated here. He's faithful to the law. So that what we would call the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant, Joseph, he's not a perfect person. Right? He's got sin and issues just like everybody else, but he, he's wanting to do the right thing. He's following the law to the best of his abilities. He's going to the festivals and keeping the meals, and, and he's bringing offerings and sacrifices to the temple, and so his, his sin would be covered through the sacrificial system. Like, he's trying to do things the right way. But because he's trying to do things the right way, because he's faithful to the law, because he's righteous, it leads him to this conclusion right here. I have to divorce her. I cannot go through with this, this marriage because I'm trying to do the God-honoring thing. She's pregnant. It's not my child. This isn't right in the eyes of God. And so he's like, I, 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 have to, I have to do the right thing. But then at the same time, we also see that he doesn't want to expose her to public disgrace. That if, if, if Joseph, Joseph makes a scene about this, says, hey, everybody, look, she's pregnant. That's not my child. She's, she's been unfaithful. That, is, that will ruin Mary's life. It will be over. And so there's something in Joseph in, in which he's like, I, I want to do this as quietly as possible, that there is a mercy and a grace and a love that's also displayed. And I think it's such a cool thing that in the person of Joseph, who we know relatively little about, we see what is the character of God throughout Scripture. We see what, what becomes this, this character, this picture of Jesus, where there is truth, trying to do the right thing. There is, there is a standard of right and wrong, and then there's this grace. And 
there's this love, and there's this mercy. And so he's trying to figure out how to process this information. Okay, Mary's pregnant. I know it's not mine. She said something about the child being God's, but come on, who's actually going to believe that? And so but because I'm faithful to the law, but because I love her and I want to do what's best for, for her as, as, as best to my ability, he's going to divorce her quietly. It's at that moment that he has his angelic visit. But after he had considered this, so he's thinking through it. He's like, here's my plan. Here's what I'm going to do. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So the first thing that this angel does that's significant is the way in which he addresses Joseph. Joseph, son of David. He reminds Joseph of his messianic lineage, of his Davidic lineage, that the Messiah, the promised one, would come through the line of David, someone from David's line to sit on his throne forever. And so this angel makes sure to put in the announcement, and Matthew records for us, hey, he is going to be, this child that's going to be born is going to be legally the son of Joseph, which means he is a son in the line of David. Matthew, up until this point, has been very uh, intentional about this. Matthew's gospel opens with a genealogy, tracing uh, Jesus through Joseph back to David, back to Abraham, to say he is connected in all the right ways to, to all the right people that this child will be. And so at this time, this is giving Joseph, again, the legality. We say, well, Jesus isn't, biologically is not Joseph's son, but legally he will be his legal adopted son. There's precedent for this in the culture at that time that if you were to bring someone in and adopt someone, for all intents and purposes, they are your child. Roman emperors would actually do this, and this is taking place in the Roman Empire, where an emperor may not have a son or may not want that he liked, and so he could pick Anybody from the, the, uh, the empire be like, I like this boy here, and he will raise him in his household, and he like, is uh, the son of the emperor. We see this happening. Uh, and so we have the, the legal aspect going on, and yet, just so, so you know, because some people still often want to wonder this, there's also good textual, so when we look throughout the other verses in the New Testament, and cultural, based on how Jewish weddings were done, the region that this is in, there's good textual and cultural evidence also to suggest uh, that Mary is also in the line of David, right? So biologically, Jesus is it's highly likely that he is also biologically of the line of David based on the text and the culture, and now legally the son of David as well, or the son of Joseph, therefore the son of David. Genealogies are always done in the scripture through the male in the family. And so again, as Matthew is writing to the Jewish people, he's not going to trace it through Mary. He's like, I need to trace this through Joseph because I want you to know that there is, there's no way of getting around that this child that is born is the one that was promised, the Messiah of the line of David. So Joseph, son of David, we're going to have a physical descendant of David through Mary, an adopted descendant of, um, uh, of David through uh, Joseph. And she, going on, will give birth to a son. Okay, so Joseph, here's my announcement to you. This is the angel... Mary is going to give birth to a son. You know that already, right? She told you. And you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people. The name here is what is so significant. Joseph, you're going to give him a name, and the name is Jesus. This name Jesus is not what Jesus actually would have been called. This is our translation of what Jesus would have been called. It, would be, it could be Jesus. It could be Joshua, but it's actually Yeshua. They don't have a J sound in Hebrew, so this is Yeshua. And this name has a meaning. Uh, it means um, the Lord saves, or more literally, 
Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. That at his core, who he is, God is salvation. So give him this name. And this, is, this wouldn't have been a shocking thing for him to hear. At that time, this is a very, very common name. Uh, one commentator actually said that Jewish boys for centuries have been given this name with the same frequency of today's John or Mike. Now, that was probably written a couple of decades ago because I don't know how popular of a name John and Mike are right now. But pick whatever the most popular boy's name is right now, and that would basically be Jesus getting this name Jesus. Because other, so, so I think it's funny to think that at the time of Jesus, he's running around as a little kid. There's probably a whole bunch of other Jesuses running around. And so when Mary or Joseph call, hey, Jesus, it's time to come home for dinner, they're all like, which one? Okay, we're all, there have been so many kids named Jesus, and here's why. It was this prophetic hope of the Jewish people and of parents to name their kids, Yahweh is salvation. The Lord saves. It would be this reminder in their life every single day, where is our hope? Where is our trust? Who will save us? The Lord is our salvation. Yahweh is salvation. And so while the name itself is not uncommon, uh, it's not super special or significant, the way in which this Jesus embodies that name will be. Notice the, the wording of how this announcement comes. You are to give him the name Jesus, which means Yahweh is salvation, because he will save. You'll give him, the, Yahweh is salvation. Okay, great, we got that. That's a normal name. Because he will save. Wait, I thought Yahweh is salvation. Yeah, but he will save. Yeah. The angel's starting to bring these ideas together, and Matthew's going to comment on it in the next verse, that this child is more than just a man, that he will be God in the flesh. He will save his people. The hope of the Jewish people at that time, and that they were, uh, that, that they were naming their children this, was they were hoping for a salvation from their foreign oppressors that they lived in a constant state of, of oppression and subjugation, and it had been for centuries at this point. Uh, that at the time that they're under Roman occupation at this moment in history, before that, it was the Greeks. Before that, it was the Persians. Before that, it was the Babylonians. Before that, it was the Assyrians. For 700 years, they have been under foreign occupation and oppression. And so their hope is, hey, when, when the Messiah comes, he will save us, from this oppression, that we will have our own nation again, that Israel will be reestablished and the, the king from David will come and, and kind of sit on a worldly, earthly throne once again, and that's what they're waiting for. And so there would be this, this expectation, okay, finish the sentence, finish the verse, he will, uh, you'll give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their enemies, but that's not what the angel says. He says he will save his people from their sins. Change in direction of what we were expecting. He says it's not that he's going to save him, the, the people from their earthly enemies. He's actually going to save his people from the thing that is a bigger threat than the Romans at the time or whoever may arise before or after that. So there's, there's, a, there's a bigger issue that the people of that day, the people of our day, the people of every day are facing, and that is this issue of sin. Sin is a, a very, you know, it's a religious word, it's a loaded word, but it simply means to miss the mark. That's the literal translation of it. It could be used to talk about like an archer, that they missed the mark. They didn't hit their target. And so there is this target in which humans, like that's what we're aiming for. That's what we're going for. That's what we're supposed to be as humans. And we keep missing. Here's how you're supposed to love God, miss. Here's how you're supposed to love the people around you, miss. Here's how you're supposed to live and think and act and, and what it means to, to live a holy life, miss. Like we keep on missing the mark. And there's, an, there's this concept in which that is the thing that is the biggest threat to us. 
very early on in the scripture. In fact, the first couple of pages, we read uh, Genesis 1 and 2, things are going good. It's like, okay, God makes people and the whole creation, it's all beautiful and it's wonderful and everyone's living this happy life. And you're like, this is great. It lasts two whole chapters because then Genesis 3 happens and it's just all down the drain. Humanity is given a choice to uh, accept God's definition of good and evil and live according to his his good ways or to to, to, to to seize that autonomy and to define good and evil on their own terms. And humanity gives God the collective middle finger and says, we want to do it ourselves. And sin comes into the world. And evil comes into the world. And death follows it. And now we're in a fallen state. You turn the page one more in Genesis. So that's Genesis 3. Genesis 4, we start to see, okay, well, what, what does the world look like now that sin has entered it? And you see like the first kids, so you have Adam and Eve who sin against God and they, they eat the fruit and sin comes into the world. And then they have a couple of sons, Cain and Abel, you've heard of them. And, and this is a really short account and it's, it, it, it lacks a lot of details and that's actually on purpose because like the, the authors of the Hebrew scriptures want you to think of this over and over and turn this over in your mind and, and use that as you, as you read some of the other passages. But we see that they bring God an offering and, and there's something Cain's isn't quite acceptable but Abel's is and Cain starts getting really mad about that. He's like, what's going on? Why don't you like my stuff? That's kind of my commentary on it. Um, but in Genesis chap- chapter 4, verse 7, there's this, just this one statement that is haunting, and it paints the picture of the human condition. So God tells Cain, hey, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Now that's kind of a haunting question because it gives this picture for all of humans, like you, you have the option to do what's right. There is never a moment in time where you are forced to do something that's wrong. You can always do the right thing in theory. Like you can do the right thing. You can do the good thing. You can do the loving thing. It's like, I know technically I can, but then you read on. He says, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. The language that's actually used there, what gets developed in the Old Testament especially, is this idea of sin crouching at your door. It's this picture of a wild beast outside of the door. And its desire is to have you, literally to consume you, to devour you, to eat you alive. And so he says, hey, you can do what's right, but if you open that door up and let that beast in, it will eat you alive. It will kill you. It will destroy everything about your life. That is the threat of sin in our lives and in the world. That there are those things, and man, you don't even have to be a religious person to see this. There's just stuff that when we, when we crack that door open a little bit, it comes in and just rips us apart. And it comes into other people's lives and it rips them apart. And sometimes the, the, the collateral damage of it ripping other people's lives apart spills out into our lives. And it just, man, the world gets messy. Our lives get messy quick. And there is so much pain and so much suffering because of human sin. And, and that, that haunting line, when God tells Adam and Eve, hey, if you, if you choose your own way, if you eat that fruit, that's the picture that's given. If you choose your own way, death will be the consequence. And it may not be immediate, but sin ultimately kills things. How many... How many relationships have been killed because of sin? How many reputations have been killed because of sin? How, how, how much of our just health has been killed because of sin? It, it, it comes in different forms where it's like, oh my gosh, I can't, there's things that I want to stop doing, but I can't even stop doing it. Maybe it's greed, maybe it's anger, maybe it's lust, maybe it's the hate that we hold in our hearts, the lies that we tell ourselves or other people, and it's just there, and it's just gnawing at us over and over and over again. And this idea that sin leads to death, ultimately it's why we die physically, and ultimately it's why we will die eternally, because we will be separated from the God who is the source of life. 
And so this angel is like, hey, Joseph, this child is going to save his people from their sin. Not, just, not, not from the oppression of the Romans. I mean, that, that's, that, that's unfortunate that you're in that circumstance, but, but how terrible would it be if this child saved you from your circumstances, but on the inside, sin is still eating you alive and killing you. That would be a torturous thing to say, hey, I fixed your circumstances, but you are still broken with no hope. And so this, this, this child will save you from the thing that is destroying you and destroying every person on the planet. He's coming to save his people from their sin. That's, that's the angel's announcement to Joseph. Angel out, like he's, he's done now. But Matthew's going to come in and kind of give a little bit of commentary on what's just happened. So the angels come with the announcement to Joseph. Hey, you're going to take Mary as your wife. Don't be afraid. It is, this, this child is from God. She wasn't crazy when she told you this, right? Name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. And then Matthew's like, here's what this means. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. And he's going to quote the prophet Isaiah. We looked a little bit at uh, some of Isaiah's prophecies last week. Isaiah writes 600 years before Jesus walks the earth. And it says all of these things that find their fulfillment in Jesus. And he says, here's what's happening. It's the fulfillment of this prophecy. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is why not only are you going to name him Yahweh is salvation, but he will be the one who saves his people because he is God with us, because he is more than just human, that, that, that he is the Lord most high. And we see in these couple of verses and these two names that are given to Jesus, just a summary statement of the gospel, of what would unfold over, this is right at the beginning of Matthew, through the rest of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, and the early church would reflect upon this. This is a summary statement that this, this incredible idea, this simple yet transformative idea that he is God with us to save us, that he came near to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Tom Wright, in his, his commentary on this, I thought he just summed it up really, 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 really well. He said that the two names together express the meaning of the story, of the whole gospel story, that God is present with his people, that he doesn't intervene from a distance, but he's always active, sometimes in the most unexpected ways. And God's actions are aimed at rescuing people from a helpless plight, demanding that he take the initiative and do things that people had regarded as, so to speak, inconceivable. Now that's either a play on the kind of immaculate conception or Tom Wright watches The Princess Bride. I like to imagine it's both. But here, here it is. He's like, here's this idea, like these two names, Emmanuel, God is present with his people. He is not far away. He did not stay away from us in our brokenness. And he is rescuing us and doing something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. Give him the name Jesus. Yahweh is salvation because he will save his people from their sin. These two ideas together have the potential to shape everything about our lives because there is the recognition and the realization I need to be saved from something. There, there are things in me that I do, that I think, how I act, and I hate it, and I wish I could stop, but it's like that thing is crouching at my door, breaking down the door, and it keeps doing it, and death keeps following. Right? We, we need to be saved. But at the same time, don't miss the fact that God came close. Because sometimes we can, we can be like, oh, yeah, I'm a sinner, and, I'm, and, 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 and I can feel so horrible about that. And our sin should cause us to mourn. It should cause us to weep. We should recognize that we are broken. But when God saw our sinfulness and said, you need to be saved, he did not go, oh, my gosh, you are so 
you're so disgusting, you are so jacked up, you are so messed up, I can't possibly get close to you. He said, no, because you need saved and because you are worth saving, I will come near. I will be Emmanuel, God, with you. God was with us to save us. And as Matthew is recording these words for, again, primarily a Jewish audience as his gospel was aimed towards and the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, I would imagine that his Jewish readers would have names and stories and faces running through their mind of all of the times that sin had devoured everyone else who they thought might possibly bring that salvation. That's what the, the story of the Old Testament had been. Every time like someone arises who you think, oh man, maybe this is the person to save us you see them just give in to the same temptation and the same evil knocking at their door. And it starts all the way at the beginning in the garden. God creates humanity and sin devours them. And then you fast forward in the story and God calls Abraham and he's gonna bless all the nations. You're like, oh, maybe it'll be Abraham or maybe it'll be the patriarchs that come after them. And you, re you read how messed up they are and sin devours them. And then comes uh, Moses, the lawgiver, and you're like, oh, maybe Moses will be the one. And, and you see he's got his issues and sin devours him. Maybe it's going to be Joshua. Like his name is also Yahweh is salvation. He brings the people into the promised land, but no, sin devours him too. Ah, maybe it'll be the time of the kings and the nation of Israel. You see like this, this figure arise, King David, and it's like, yes, this is the one. He's even called a man after God's own heart. And then we discover he's a, a lying, adulterous murderer, and sin devours him as well. And then here come the prophets to remind the people, hey, turn back to God. Like, well, maybe one of these prophets, and, and sin devours them as well. And if you look at the whole of the story, you're left going, can anyone save us? And here come the words of an angel and the reflection of Matthew. Yes, there is one who can, that God himself is going to do it. And no doubt the Jewish people would have had the words of Psalm 130 in their mind as they read these things. This cry of the psalmist, it's a short psalm, it's only eight verses, that says, Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? But with you, there's forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I will put my hope. I will wait for the Lord. More than the watchmen wait for the morning, more than the watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. And then verse 8, the final verse of the psalm, he himself will redeem Israel from all of their sins. Nobody else could do it, so he himself will do it. Give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins because sin is your biggest problem. It's mine. It is the thing that kills me every single day. It is the thing that is actively killing all of us and everyone around us. It seeks to destroy us, to kill every good thing in our life, everything about us. And nothing that we do and nothing that we possess and nothing that we can strive for, no person, no accomplishment, no good deeds, no education can say, aha, I found my salvation in this thing. Only God himself saves he himself will redeem his people, and he has come near to save us. He's come near, up close and personal, to save us. And so when we think about Christmas, and we think about all that we could talk about, and everything that our faith is about, we can remember a lot of things, and we can celebrate a baby in a manger, but at the end of the day, at Christmas, we don't simply celebrate a baby in a manger. We celebrate a Savior on a cross, 
Because that baby who was born was born to be the savior of the world, who would die for our sins, to take that punishment that we deserved, who would raise from the dead, defeating what were the consequences of sin. Sin was like, hey, here's the trump card. It is death. And Jesus says, it has no more power. That's what we remember. That is at the core of our faith and our hope that God was with us to save us.